Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Well, please be seated. Good morning, and I guess a Merry Christmas, I guess, right? Merry Christmas. You know, this morning's Christmas reading from Luke's Gospel reminds me of the story I heard of a woman who took her 16-year-old daughter to the doctor. And once all of them had sat down in the doctor's office, the doctor asked, well, okay, Mrs. Jones, uh, what's the problem? And the mother replied, it's my daughter, Debbie. She keeps getting these cravings, she's putting on weight, and she is sick most mornings. Well, the doctor gave Debbie a good examination and then turned to Mrs. Jones and said, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but your daughter Debbie's pregnant. It's about four months would be my guess. Well, the mother was incredulous at this idea. Pregnant? She can't be. She's never even been left alone with a man. Have you, Debbie? Well, Debbie turned red but quickly replied, no, mother, I've never even kissed a man. Debbie's mother was a little bit confused when, upon hearing this, the doctor immediately got up from his chair walked over to the window and began staring intently out of the window. After about five minutes of awkward silence had passed, the mother got up the nerve to ask, is there something wrong, doctor? And the doctor replied, no, not really. It's just that the last time anything like this happened, a star appeared in the east and three wise men came over the hill, and I'll be darned if I'm going to miss it this time. (laughs) I was spending a couple of months looking at what it is that Christians believe, and this week... We're continuing to look at what Christians believe about the humanity of Jesus through the Christmas story in particular. And we're doing this because what we believe matters. What we believe matters. And what we believe about God matters most of all. It will shape and impact our very lives. And the way we're doing this, as Stan mentioned, is we're looking at a different section of the Nicene Creed each week. That's the words that we'll say after the sermon. And in week one, we looked at why we believe there's a God and what he's like. And what we saw that is that Christians have good reason to believe that there's a God, that's someone who made us in his image and who loves those who follow him like a good father and who's knowable and all-powerful, bringing order and life to the universe and with it, true purpose and meaning. In week two, we looked at why we believe that Jesus is God and why it matters This was, after all, the main reason the Council of Nicaea, which made the creed, uh, was actually held in 325 AD to discuss the question of the real meaning and the significance of Jesus Christ. You see, while the church had long believed already that Jesus was both God and man, this was now being called into question by a priest in North Africa called Arius, and he was gaining a following across the Roman Empire. And he was teaching that Jesus, the Son of God, was actually made by God and that he possessed neither the eternity nor the true divinity of the Father. What we saw last week, though, is that Scripture reveals that Jesus is uncreated. He is begotten of the Father, not made by the Father. And God is Jesus. And because of God's love for us, he enters into the world that he made to rescue us from sin. He is the Messiah who's come to save us. And it's only because he is God that he is able to live the life required to be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. No one else could do that. And as such, we owe him everything we are. We owe him our worship and our obedience. Well, this week, we're actually going to begin to look at his humanity. Always remembering, though, that he is simultaneously fully human and fully 
divine, 100% God and 100% man, something the creed is at pains to express. Now, you can follow along if you want. You can find the text of the creed on the screens right here. And today, what we read is this. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. This section is really all about the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, don't let the words doctrine or incarnation put you off, okay? Doctrine is simply just stating what we believe. It's to state what we believe. And incarnation, at its most basic, means taking on flesh, to take on flesh. And in its religious context, the word used to mean the descent from heaven of a God or a divine being in human animal form on earth. For Christians, the incarnation of Christ, that's God becoming flesh, is a central doctrine to what we believe. We believe that God assumed a human nature and he became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases John's gospel, chapter one, in his message version of the Bible. When he says of Jesus, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. But you know, all of this is a contentious idea. You see, while some religions have their own stories of gods taking human form, think of Greek and Roman mythology, or Hinduism speaks of avatars, other religions such as Islam reject the idea completely. For mainstream Muslims, the doctrine of the incarnation of God in any form is seen as idolatrous. So to state that Jesus became flesh is idolatry itself. It's wrong in their eyes to associate any beings or things with Allah in such a way. And so while they believe Jesus is human, that he's born of the Virgin Mary, and he's a prophet and a wise teacher, they cannot accept that he is God or the Son of God, or that God, most scandalously of all, could die upon a cross. But even for the religions that accept some form of incarnation of gods or God, the Christian concept is quite different. In Scripture, we read that God didn't just look human, he actually became human. He didn't just look human, he became human. The Anglican theologian J.I. Packer writes this, The Gospels show Jesus experiencing human limitations, such as hunger in Matthew chapter 4, weariness in John chapter 4, ignorance of fact in Luke chapter 8, and human pain, weeping at Lazarus's grave, agonizing in Gethsemane, and suffering on the cross, of course. Hebrews stresses that he had he not thus experienced human pressures, weakness, temptation, pain, he would not be qualified to help us as we go through these things. And so the early church needed to think through what this doctrine meant and how to express it. And so the earliest formulation of this really is the Nicene Creed. And what the creed says in language that's true to Scripture and that fits everything else that the church believed about human beings is that Jesus is fully God on the one hand and he's fully man. He's not created by God. He is God. And yet simultaneously, he's 100% God and 100% man. Many of the Christmas carols that we sing each year echo this. We sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. Name the tune. What? Hark the Herald. Well done. 
or God of God, light of light, eternal, and word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. What's the carol? Anyone? Was that O Come All Ye Faithful, I think? O Come All Ye Faithful, right. Most of the carols have something to do with that. And in the end, the incarnation is a mystery. You either believe it or you don't. But here are some of the reasons why the doctrine of the incarnation is so important and not just something that we can dismiss as irrelevant and say, well, I can carry on believing that I'm a Christian without this doctrine. Number one, it means that God is on our side. That's good news, right? God is on our side. He's not a distant deity who's out there, as those early deists believe, judging us and perhaps occasionally hurling thunderbolts from heaven at us. No, he made himself weak and vulnerable. He is infinitely above us, and yet he came alongside us. What was it that we heard in our reading from Matthew's gospel? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us, friends, and that is good news. Like no other God ever conceived of by mankind. The God we worship, he enters into our pain and our suffering and our brokenness, and he walks with us. He walks with us, once in the flesh, but now by his Holy Spirit. Reminds me of a song I sometimes hear when I'm driving along listening to 100.5, his radio in my car. It is actually called God With Us, and it's by a band called Mercy Me. And the words go like this. Who are we that you would be mindful of us? What do you see that's worth looking our way? We are free in ways that we never should be. Sweet release from the grip of these chains, like hinges straining from the weight. My heart no longer can keep from singing. All that is within me cries for you alone be glorified. Emmanuel, God with us. My heart sings a brand new song. The debt is paid. These chains are gone. Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation means that the God of the universe is with us and he's for us. And it's such good news that we should sing for joy about that as we have already today. So secondly, God's not just with us. Secondly, it means that God actually understands us. So he's with us and he's for us and he understands us. At one level, this is true anyway. He is God after all. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. To quote J.I. Packer again, as it is, his human experience is such as to guarantee that in every moment of demand and pressure in our relationship and walk with God, we may go to him, confident that in some sense, he has been there before us. And so is the helper we truly need. God understands all that you and I go through. Whatever it might be, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever struggle, he understands because he has been through it. So he's for us, he's with us, he understands us. And then thirdly, it means that God identifies completely with us so that we will be completely identified with him. Now you might say, well, what does that mean? Well, the early church fathers put this strongly and strikingly. Irenaeus spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is 
himself. And Athanasius wrote it more simply, God has become man so that man might become God. Not meaning that we literally become God, but that we can be united with him because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And it's not just something that happens one day. No, we get a taste of it right here, right now. Think about what we'll say a little later on in the service as we prepare to receive communion. You'll recognize these words. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself, and when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. We are reconciled to him. We are united with him because Jesus becomes flesh and he dies for us and rises again. Well, fourthly, it means that every part of us is under his lordship. Uh, Another one of the early church fathers, Gregory Nazianzen, argued against another bishop, Apollinaris, who taught that in Jesus, God had united himself to a human body alone. So God had basically said, I'm going to come and be a human, but I'm actually not really going to be human. I'm still just God. Well, Gregory refuted this and said, no, he had assumed a human mind too. Because if he hadn't, then our minds would would remain unredeemed. In a famous phrase, he explained, what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is is not healed. The point being that in order for Jesus to heal our sinful minds, he had to have a thoroughly human mind of his own. And the argument extends to all elements of our humanity, to every aspect of our nature, and contrary to various heretics, especially to those things which make us weak, even our minds. Someone also wrote, what was not lifted up was not healed referring to the passage in Isaiah where it says, by his stripes we're healed. They're making the same point, only here specifically pointing to the crucifixion. In other words, anything Jesus did not take to the cross, he didn't take care of. It wasn't in the package when he said, it's finished. (coughs) Healing in this context like redemption. We're healed of sin, of our frailties, our willfulness, and in that healing we become what we were meant to be, like him, like him. The last reason the incarnation is so important is it's a constant reminder of how God chooses to reveal himself. You know, at Christmas, we think of Christ as a baby. Maybe you think of sweet baby Jesus, right? Uh, Vulnerable and helpless, but still God. As Queen Lucy puts it in uh, C.S. Lewis's final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world world. The incarnation reminds us that God's in small and helpless things, and that he can choose to reveal himself however he wants to, even through you and me. But let's not miss the enormity of Lucy's point about Christmas. It's a really profound one. Have you ever considered what was contained in that tiny stable those many centuries ago? Many people puzzle about the miracle that is Christ's virgin birth. But if we believe there's a God who holds all of the molecules of the universe together, that moment is unusual, but it's hardly stunning. Think for a moment, though, about the physics of containment in that little stable. This God, who is bigger than all of creation, was wrapped in human flesh and began converting H2O into CO2 in the musty dank of a distant barn. As the theologian 
Frederick Buchner put it, the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. Well, friends, the doctrine of the incarnation, I would assert, is good news. It's good news for you and it's good news for me. It means that the God of the universe is with us and he's for us. Not someone who's just like God or made by God, but God himself with all of God's power at his fingertips. And whatever struggle you're going through, he cares about it and he understands it. And so you can come to him knowing that he will not reject you, but that he'll welcome you with open arms and that he's made a way for you to be set free and to be healed. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, we say. He is for us. In other words, he loves us. And so he came to save us from our sins, to heal us of all brokenness. And speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Jesus himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In the very next verse, though, Jesus makes it clear that following him, well, it's still a choice that we have to make. He says this, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, God doesn't create robots. We're not robots who have every decision already pre-decided for us, but we're human beings with free will. And we must decide for ourselves if we believe in him or not. The apostle Peter, speaking in our reading from Acts to the uh, it's speaking to the Jewish rulers and elders and scribes after the ascension of Jesus. Well, he says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the question we have to ask is, will we receive him or will we reject him? There's a great line in the much-loved Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's written by the 19th century Anglican priest, Phillips Brooks, and it says this, No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. The incarnation presents us with a choice. And there is a meekness required to make that choice. You know, for many, meekness is seen as weakness. But in Scripture, it's something that is praised. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus. Now, true meekness should never be confused with being timid. It is to be righteous. It is to be humble. It is to be teachable. And it's to be patient under suffering, long-suffering, willing to follow gospel teachings, which is the attribute of a true disciple, someone who's willing to lay down their pride and to recognize that they are not God and that they need him more than anything else in this world. So the question is, will you receive this God-man or will you reject him? The choice is yours. And much like the doctrine of the incarnation, 
as put forward in the Nicene Creed, the choice matters immensely. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as you present this choice to us, will we receive you or reject you? I pray that each one of us will receive you, will choose to follow you, will choose to be formed by you, will choose to fulfill your mission on this earth, that we might be disciples who love you and who seek to help others love you as well. Lord, we pray as well that we would know that you are always with us and that you are for us, that whatever comes, Lord, you understand us. Help us to know that we do not face this world alone, but we face it with the God who enters in, who enters into our pain and our brokenness and who understands it and puts us in communities where we are loved and supported by others who are filled with your spirit. We pray us all in Jesus' name. Amen.